think we start on a, in a very important area of our faith. We will look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and this is only part, part one. So we're going to do it for a couple of weeks, then go to chapter 15, and then come back to it in chapter 16. But obviously the ministry of the Holy Spirit is something that is, covers the whole of the Bible. Very important indeed. So from John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21 is our text for this morning. Now over the past few weeks we have spoken of the fact that Jesus was preparing his disciples because he was going back to heaven. He was going to leave them. He was going to leave them but he was going to the Father to prepare a place for them and then return later. In his consolation, in his farewell, he didn't say to them, I think you guys should uh, take it easy for a while and, and try and uh, take some time out to, to recover. Uh, and then when you feel good about it, uh, when you are ready, then we can go on from there. No, that's not really what Jesus says to them. In fact, it was full on and quite intense from the word go. The only waiting that we'll do is in fact waiting for the Holy Spirit according to Acts chapter 1 verse 4 where they will have to wait for the Spirit to come as they gather in Jerusalem. So he prepares them with this is what, this is, what is going to happen and this is what you will do. And after that, they will be going even great, they will be doing even greater works than what they have, than what even Jesus had done. They will do some amazing things. And perhaps as they listen to all of this, they're becoming a bit overwhelmed. So much info to take in. Because like we said, the past three years of discipleship, instruction, it's all come down to this intense examination. And maybe it was a bit overwhelming, a bit anxious, a bit like kids at exam time, isn't it? I don't know what to do. What, what was it again that he said? Okay. But Jesus says to them, I will give you everything. Don't worry, I will give you everything you need to accomplish the task. How is that possible? Jesus told them that they have to pray whatever they ask in his name and he will give them. Nothing will be impossible for them. But we saw last week that praying his name is actually praying the way that Jesus would pray. Have we ever done that? Have we ever prayed like as, as if Jesus would pray? Jesus, I need a pink car. Thank you. Nah, I changed my mind. I want a blue one now. I want a house, a big one, with lots of pets, lots of dogs. Is that how Jesus would pray? 
Hmm. You, you, you see, we are so conflicted with the things that we that we want, where God is is more concerned about the things that we need. And this is where the conflict starts. And so to even pray as Jesus would pray, we need help. So where do we start? Well, we need to be grounded in love. Grounded in love. We're going to look at verse 15 and then verse 21, which is our passage is from 15 to 21. And so these, both of these statements come in the first verse that we look at and in the last verse that we look at. It works like a bookend. If you love me, in verse 5, Jesus said, in verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And then in verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. These words are so, so important that Jesus is making the point twice and he will make it again later on. There is, however, a slight difference between the first mention in verse 15 and the second mention in verse 21. In verse 15, he is speaking to his disciples, while in verse 21, he lays down the principle applicable to all believers, to all Christians for all time. Because you see, love for Christ and obedience to his word are so closely knit together that it makes an actual mockery of those who say that they love Jesus and then continue to live like pagans, just like the rest of the world, with a total disregard for his commands. You see it. I've seen it. You've seen it. And yet they call themselves Christians. You see the statements that they make on social media. And by the way, I'm a Christian and they make these obnoxious statements. But then they qualify by saying, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? And, and, and if you know this particular person, right, and, and as a pastor, sometimes you, have a, you, you might have a chat to them and, and they might retort, they might uh, push back and say, why are you judging me? I'm exercising my freedom in Christ and you're just being a bully and a legalist. I'm sort of bringing a lot of conversations together into one statement. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about legalism. So what is it? Legalism is the vain effort to obey God by following a set of rules. All religions and cults have a set of rules. The prevailing motivation is fear. Fear of being sent to hell, fear of losing your salvation, fear of curses and missing out on blessings, fear that others might think less of you if they really found out what you're really up to. So you do all this other stuff to make sure nobody else is watching. Well, what about God? Well, it doesn't matter. He's... Yeah, he doesn't care. Really? 
So you come up with rituals. You come up with a list, an acceptable list of do's and don'ts. Not only for yourself, but then you start imposing it on other people around you. This is what the Apostle Paul had to deal with as he went from one city to one town, from one synagogue to another. He's always having to, even after he planted a church, the people that were instructed by him suddenly started to go back to what they knew in Judaism. And he's saying to them, guys, we need to move on from that. Why do you go back to that? And the letter of Galatians is, is covered in, in, the, in what he's trying to say, life in the spirit and life in the flesh, life in the law. But there was another church as well, the church in Colossae. So he writes to the Colossians and he says this, and this is found in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. And this is what, it said, what he says to them. He says, since you died with Christ, to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such Regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What do you like when no one is watching? Except God. What do you get up to? Where do your thoughts take you? Jesus gave commands and expected obedience to those commands. If you want to read some of his teaching of how we are to live, I found in Matthew. Chapter 5, 6, 7, and then so many others. And this is an integral part of what discipleship, the life of a Christian, is about. So what is the difference between, say, a legalism, a set of rules, and Christian discipleship, the commands that Jesus gave us? The difference is love. The person who attempts to obey the commandments of God in order to, to gain acceptance from God is a legalist. The person who obeys his commandments because he is already a son and daughter, he is already part of the family of God, will live a life as a child of God because of love, because of Christian love. That is the greatest motivation. Because I am part of his family, this is the way I'm, I'm going to live. So the relationship is grounded, it is built up, it is maintained, it is sustained, it is enforced by love, not by the law. 
A legalist does things in order to be accepted. The child of God knows he's already accepted and responds in love. Can you see the difference? Because we, we need to understand this. We need to see this. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying to us here. Let's turn these words of Jesus around so the point of the passage is highlighted. If you do not keep my commandments, you do not love me. That's in fact what he's saying, isn't it? If you do not keep my commandments, you do not love me. So let's remember the context of obedience here. Jesus is comforting his disciples who are troubled because he is going to leave them, going back to the Father. And what about us? When we are distressed, when we are anxious, when we need comforting, when we go through troubled times and testing, well, your own comfort will be in direct proportion to the degree to which you keep his commandments, to the degree to which you love Jesus. If you're a believer but your life is characterised by disobedience, disregard for what God teaches, then you would expect to have, a, you know, you would expect to, when you get into trouble, to be in even greater trouble because there is no comfort. There is no, you, you are living outside the will of God. If you're living in disobedience, how do you expect to have the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Because the comfort of the Holy Spirit is for those who love Jesus, who love, those who obey his commands. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, Paul, you set a pretty high standard here. What are you really saying? Let's be clear that I'm not talking, the Bible is not talking about perfectionism. Those who actually believe that they do not sin, the Apostle John in his first letter actually calls liars in John chapter in one John chapter one verse eight. Right? So how can we obey the Lord's commands knowing that we're always going to be coming up short. We're going to be missing the mark. Well, it comes to being honest, isn't it? When you sin, does the sin bother you more than the prospect of being found out? Does your conscience afflict you for the sin itself? Does it bring sorrow in your heart, the fact that you have disobeyed? Do you confess in humble repentance before Christ knowing that he will forgive if you do come before him? Or do you simply excuse it as part of your sinful nature and just say, well, that's the way I am. Take it or leave it. And look, everybody else is doing the same thing. What are you having a go at me for? 
How do we respond? It makes a very big difference, doesn't it? In our walk with God, one reaction to the other. The need for the Holy Spirit. Having said all that, these disciples were going to come up short, weren't they? We know how they struggled to fully comprehend who Jesus was. Even at this late stage, Philip saying, show us the Father. Philip, I've been with you all this time and you still you know, don't know who I am. How, how could, they, could they know how to pray as Jesus might pray in any given situation? How will they respond to every, everything, every challenge that they face as Jesus would, would respond? How could they do that? How could they keep his commands? These children, as Jesus called them, would need more help than simply just some verbal instruction, just to, this is what you are to do, guys, almost like a, a coach giving a pep talk before the game. Okay, boys, this is what we're going to do. Jesus, knowing their desperate need to, to relieve them, to, to relieve their anxiety for the mission task ahead later, Jesus promised to send not something, but someone, another helper to help them. And we know this someone as nothing less than the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Spoken of in verse 17 and verse 26 and then in later chapters. Thankfully, in these parting words, Jesus describes for us who is and what the role of the Holy Spirit is. Now, in the coming weeks, like I I said, we're going to hear more about the Holy Spirit because there is a great need for us to understand the marvellous ministry of the Holy Spirit from a biblical perspective. J.I. Packer says that the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work of the Holy Spirit does. Thankfully, the manner in which Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit tells us a great deal about his purpose in our lives. And there is so much to teach about the Holy Spirit that has been so greatly neglected in the church in our time. The reason why we are given to excesses, on the one hand, the traditional churches tend to be in total almost denial and suppression of the work of the Holy Spirit, while on the other end, the healers and the health and wealth and the hucksters and the, the show that put on for the Holy Spirit, uh, they go to the other end. And both of these extremes are unhealthy, they're unhelpful. This is why we need to address this crucial lesson. We need to understand what the Holy Spirit does. James Montgomery Montgomery Boyce says, and I quote, the first point we must settle in our minds in regard to the Holy Spirit is whether he is a real person whose work it is to get hold of us and use us. 
or whether the Holy Spirit is merely some vague power we are to get hold of for our benefit. This is important, and I continue. He says, this is important as a, as a mere matter of truth, for either the Holy Spirit is a real person or he is not. But it is also important on, on a practical level. And I put the, this bit up here, which is important. He says, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? If we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit have more of me? The first thought is entirely pagan. The second is New Testament Christianity. I thought that was brilliant. Firstly then, the work of the Holy Spirit from the first part of verse 16. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. Notice how the Holy Spirit is referred to with a personal pronoun. This means that the Holy Spirit is a person, not merely a thing, a power, a, a, a zap, something to infuse you. The Greek word used here is the word uh, parakletos. Para, no, it's not got nothing to do with paramatter. Para uh, means alongside, alongside, alongside of, and kletos means called. So taken together, the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus as one who is called alongside of. Because Jesus is going back to the Father, he asked the Father to send a helper to, to come alongside of us, to help us. The Father sends the helper because he, know, he knows that we need help in what? In everything, in so many things. But greatest help we need is assistance, we need help in conforming our will to God's will. What would God have me do in this situation, in that situation, in the short term, in the long term? How do I run my family? How do I get involved in the church? How do I, what would I do in his kingdom? What will I do at work with this situation? And, 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 and this goes way beyond a, a, a sugar hit or, or a God moment, which could happen anywhere. It could be in a church service, it could be out there in nature, it could be anywhere. It, a feeling, because you see, a feeling or, or an experience might have a, a short-term impact, but it will not ultimately change you. There may be occasions when you feel this, this powerful emotional stirring, a chill running down your spine. We might even be moved to tears. Many times we, it could be a new chorus that we sing and it just hits you, God speaking to you at that particular moment, some word. 
Sometimes it's an old hymn that relays a message back to your childhood when you first heard her. It could have been at a, it touches a moment, a funeral of a loved one. Bang. It's an emotional experience. We are emotional beings. I'm not dying. It's an important experience of our lives, but it has to be grounded in the truth. Having just an experience is not the comprehensive proof of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. It could be, but you cannot simply rely on your experience that it is. The evidence of the Spirit's work will manifest itself in a strong inclination to do the will of God. And some of us have responded in a, in a meeting, in an evangelistic meeting, and given our lives to Christ, have responded to the challenge of the preacher to be obedient to the Lord through the waters of baptism. Our hearts were stirred that God was speaking to me, and he does. Obviously, why would we be here? At other times, it could be a specific mission conference where the speaker challenges people, God, through the speaker, challenging people in the power of the Holy Spirit to go into the mission field. It could be in Australia, it could be overseas. How many missionaries in the history of missions responded and impacted the world in response to God's call? See, that's the Spirit of God working. The evidence of the Spirit's work will manifest itself in a strong inclination to do the will of God. And it might not even be about going into the mission field. It might even be, how do I respond, Lord, in this particular situation that I'm going through at the moment? It could be at work. It could be an illness. Be a relational issue. How will I respond? So Jesus gives his spirit not simply to make us feel good, although, yes, the Holy Spirit many times does indeed lift us up, makes us feel good, makes us float on cloud nine. But sometimes the Holy Spirit will actually convict us of sin in our lives and that is painful. The divine surgeon performing surgical work in our hearts and spirits, separating sin from our lives and, and confronting us, right? It's, it's, this, is, this is real. This is the process of sanctification which is the Holy Spirit's domain. Jesus gives us his spirit in order to strengthen us and I repeat it, to incline us to do his will. Jesus says, in that day you shall know that I am in the Father. Jesus is in the Father and you in me and I in you. Imagine that. We're in Jesus, Jesus in us, we're in the Father. This is all from verse 20. 
This is, this is a tremendous truth. Jesus is in the Father. We are in Jesus. Jesus in us. It, it's, it'll take all of life and then eternity to, pun, to ponder on this, this, amazing, this amazing truth. Secondly, the second part of verse 16 tells us that he is always with the believer and be with you forever, he says. Be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Face it, if, if the commitment level of these disciples to Jesus was all over the place, one minute it was low, one minute they're prepared to do this, the next moment they're going to be denying him, all over the place, right? So if it depended on the commitment level of the disciples, where would their salvation be? Where, were they, where would they be? So it must have been comforting for them to know that in spite of their fears, in spite of their doubts, in spite of all their weaknesses, the Spirit will always be with them. And similarly with us. If the Spirit's presence in our lives was conditional upon us reaching a certain level of faithfulness, our anxiety and doubts would persist, if not substantially increase. We will never be sure. Am I in? Am I out? It's like the flowers, isn't it? The petals. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. How would you know? The Holy Spirit always lives in the heart of the believer, in the heart of those who love Jesus. And as a spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is the master of, teacher. In fact, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no one will be able to understand and personally incorporate any spiritual truth. We simply will not be able to understand. And so you, sometimes you might engage in conversations and, and the, the other person just doesn't get it, doesn't get it. Why? Because it hasn't been revealed to them. They just cannot comprehend spiritual things. Because it takes the Holy Spirit for their hearts to open. It takes the Holy Spirit for the scale to fall from their eyes. And therefore, some, and, and so years later you might hear a testimony. Yeah, yeah, I grew up in a church and, you know, 40, 50 years ago, I just didn't get it, eh? Nothing, nothing. It's, it's, I don't know, it took a long time, but finally I'm here because I now fully understand what the Bible, what truth what God is all about. What happened in the process? Why did it take so long? I don't know. All I know is that the Spirit's work is working in your life. What does it feel like to have the Spirit of Christ living within you? Well, it's really hard to describe it in words, isn't it? And it's, in fact, it's 
it's, it's not even enough to be acquainted with the Holy Spirit through instruction alone, which is what we are doing now. It is an experience. It is a heart matter. Perhaps this is why Jesus says the world does not know him. They have no relationship with him, the rest of the world, but you know him because he lives in you. So in this sense you can't get more of the spirit. It is about the spirit having more of you. Thirdly, part of the Spirit's work is assuring us that we are part of God's family. Verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, I don't know how many, if any of you here this morning, know exactly what being an orphan is all about. Um, I do suspect that we, we might have some of you here in our church and if you already told me your story and I forgot it, I'm sorry. But I, that's what I'm saying. I do believe that there are a couple of orphans here. I don't know what it's like to be an orphan. I am thankful because Christians for thousands of years have established orphanages to care and to nurture those who through tragedy or neglect, had nowhere to go. And uh, for a couple of thousand years now, Christians have rescued those who have been abandoned because they were handicapped, because nobody cared, they were simply not part of their plan at the time. Or through tragedy, in an accident, what have you, that uh, they lost both parents. And you know, following on from that, despite our affluence in a country like Australia, despite our material wealth, it's interesting that the, 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 the feelings that orphans go through, as, as far as my understanding is, that to be nobody cares, that you have no one to, to love you, that type of thing, loneliness is a huge issue in our society and that is despite the fact that we are such an affluent society loneliness is a big issue and I'm actually of the opinion that affluence is actually a major cause of loneliness it's, it's the old saying of the huge mansion and one person living inside This is why it's so important that through every stage of life we need one another. We are dependent when when we're just born, as we grow up, and certainly as we age. We need one another. But even when we do, when we have one another, we can still, for one reason or another, still find ourselves alone. It could be because of uh, difficulty, it could be because of persecution that uh, we might or not find ourselves in, in the future. 
Jesus reassures us that we will not be abandoned as orphans. This is, this is much more than uh, through World Vision and through Baptist World Aid and, and other agencies, uh, you have those sponsorship programs, right? When you're able to you give a certain amount per month and you're able to sponsor a child in certain countries that are needy. And it's a wonderful, wonderful ministry that you do to help these kids go through education, get health and support their family. And, but you, you're able to write letters, but a lot of the times you don't actually get to meet uh, the person that you are sponsoring. Our relationship with Christ is much more than a sponsorship program from far away because we belong to him and he is personally coming back for us. He is living in us. He's not just writing letters to us. He's not just sending money to support us. He is actually in us, beside us. He is actually leading us, personally involved in our growth. And and, and the scriptures remind us of the constant presence of God. King David said in Psalm 27, he said this, he said, though my father and mother forsake me, and that's pretty intense, right? Though my mother and father forsake me, Forsake me, the Lord will receive me, he said. Psalm 27, verse 10. And then we read in Hebrews 13, 5, which is a restatement of Deuteronomy, those fantastic words, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Are you still in need of more assurance, my brothers and sisters? Is this not enough? Well, let's read this amazing promise, which was our first reading this morning. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with a big S, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. Slaves of what? Slaves of the law, which is legalism, which is sort of rules and all of that, so that you live in fear again. Am I in? Am I out? Am I loved? Am I not? So that you live in fear. So, so, so again, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by who? By the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. Literally, daddy. It's not a a lack of respect to our heavenly father, our holy father. It is a a very personal touch, isn't it? It's, it's, It's we, through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus, we're able to pray this because the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit. So big S testifying to little S to our spirit that we are God's children. That is the assurance. You are a child of God. 
You are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. It's in Romans 8, 14 to 16. And you see how our journey through life, our, our equipping, our ultimate hope is, is bound up in and through our helper. There is much we cannot do. Later on we will see that without him we can do nothing. Right? So how does it work? Um, Is it God telling us, come on Paul, you can do this. And I say, no I can't. You do this God. Lord, please, you do that. So therefore, we have the expression, let go and let God. God will do it. But God says, no, this is not how it works. I'm going to go beside you and help you. Together, we're going to do this. But please understand this, that without me, you can't do it. But I'm going to achieve it through you and through you, through us. He he can, he can do all things, obviously, but he... He wants to work his glory through us so that in our weakness, his name is glorified, is magnified. Can you understand how this works? It's together. Me and God. Paul and him and the helper. Forever. In partnership. Delivering us to glory. In the meantime, giving glory to his name. We cannot be like Jesus in our own strength. We cannot obey his will through our own efforts. That has to be abundantly clear by now. Jesus knows this and so he provides his people with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside us and strengthens us and compels us to do the will of Christ. The Spirit assists us in doing the things that would otherwise be impossible. And we are not like those who are unable to behold the Spirit of Christ. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit within you. We are different. We are different to the world. And why? And this is how the Apostle Paul can say that we can do all things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Can you see how that works? That's how it makes sense. May God continue to work in us to do the will, to do the work of him who loved us to the end. Amen.